important. All right, let's ask God's blessing on this time. Lord, we are grateful for this time in your word. And Lord, for the instruction of your word. Lord, your word is alive and it's powerful. Lord, it speaks to our hearts, Lord. And I pray that as we study your word, we would hear not what men have to say, but Lord, what your word and what your Holy Spirit is wanting to speak to our hearts this evening. Lord, thank you for the lessons, the wisdom that comes from your word. And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So, chapter 12. Solomon died last chapter. He's handed off the kingdom to his son. His name is Rehoboam. The chapter is a little confusing because there's these two guys. They basically have similar names. I... It used to really mess up my mind when I was a young Christian trying to keep these two guys straight. Rehoboam, Jeroboam. Rehoboam, Jeroboam. They sound so similar. I am always, even to this day, just to keep the two of them straight, I always think of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He turns out to be the bad guy or a bad guy. And that's the other thing that's interesting about this particular chapter. Sometimes when you read God's Word, and I know I do this, you see two particular characters that are being presented. Sometimes we have a tendency to think one is good and one is bad, or even two to think somehow that a particular person throughout the Scripture, he's a good guy all the time, David. You know, he's a good guy. Or even two, one of the guys that I have a lot of problems with is the captain of David's army, Joab. It's like, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? And the thing is, in the Scripture, just in the same ways as it is in real life, there are times that we do things that are good and that we're following the Lord, and there are times that we blow it and we sin and we make mistakes, and those mistakes are recorded in the Scripture as well. So with both Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and whenever I think of, like I said, Jeroboam, it helps me keep them straight because I always think of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam. Rehoboam, the son of Nebat, just does not flow. It's Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And what's happening in this chapter is a fulfillment of what the prophet Ahijah said would happen in the previous chapter. The kingdom is going to be divided. And it comes as a direct consequence of Solomon forsaking the Lord late in his life as he began to worship these false gods. So let's begin by reading verse 1. It says that Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. So previous chapter, Solomon sleeps with his fathers and is buried in the city of David. It says there in verse 43 that Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his stead. It does not tell us how old Rehoboam is, but we know that Solomon reigned for 40 years. We know that Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines. We know that, again, too, you know, I mean, we, it, it could be estimated that he's a young man just in the same way that Solomon, his father, was a young man when he's given the responsibility and the reign of the kingdom. So Rehoboam goes to the city of Shechem. I believe it's about 23 miles to the north of Jerusalem. It is in the, the, the state or in the tribe of Manasseh. And basically all of the nation of Israel has come together now to make um, Rehoboam king. And, and something too, I just want to make this note. You remember the kingdom was taken from Saul because of his disobedience. David is established as king. He's established as a young man. He was a, a shepherd boy when Samuel anointed him to be king. Same thing. Solomon is a young man when he is established to be king. And now Rehoboam third generation. I just simply say this or bring this up because it seems to be a pattern that takes place many times in the scripture of how a work of God or the work that is done in a person's heart and their lives, how many times it's so difficult to pass that faith on to the second or the third generation. Many times in the scripture you see that happening where the third generation is falling away from God. They forget the work that God has done. They forget the faithfulness of their fathers. I think the same could be said even with regards to revival. Many times revivals, 
that have taken throughout taken place throughout church history you know there's a, a fire a zeal and a you know pouring out of God's spirit but then the next generation becomes a little bit more difficult to pass on our faith and then by the time many times it gets to the third generation after a revival uh, so many times it's gone from a, a, a work of the spirit to a work of the flesh or even to just simply you know a religion that you know people are going through the motions so Rehoboam Shechem Israel goes down to Shechem to make him king it says in verse 2 that it came to pass when Jeroboam the son of Nebat who was yet in Egypt and the reason why he's in Egypt told us last chapter very similar to David in that he is a young man when he is told that he is going to be king the problem is when Solomon finds out he is trying to kill Jeroboam the son of Nebat so Jeroboam goes to Egypt to hide out but now that Solomon's dead he's in Egypt it says in verse 2 that he heard it and he was fled from the presence of King Solomon and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt verse 3 that they sent and when it says they it's speaking of the nation of Israel they're they're sending Jeroboam they're sending for him they want in a sense him to be a representative they want him to kind of be a leader now that Solomon is dead and now that Rehoboam is about to be established as king it says that they sent and they called him verse 3 and Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam saying your father made our yoke grievous now therefore make thou the grievous service of your father and his heavy yoke which he did put uh, upon us lighter and we will serve you so before they establish him as king they basically have come and they file a huge complaint against Rehoboam and they basically point out that Solomon was a guy that laid heavy burdens on the on the people we've seen previously that there were extensive building projects and granted they had foreigners do the work they had slaves do much of the work and the children of Israel oversaw that but also too the children of Israel were part of the military and because of the building that Solomon did the extensive building and the prosperity and the wealth of the nation Solomon also heavily taxed the people and so this is the complaint that they have I mean I don't know any people throughout history as again to the the prospect of having a new leader come in that doesn't think man I hope we get some type of tax relief and yet it just seems that governments and leaders continue to try to get as much as they can out of the people so that's what they come to to Jeroboam with they're basically saying you know your father made it pretty hard for us it was a heavy burden for us to bear and the thing is is they basically are, are are wanting to strike up a deal you know what we'll be faithful we'll be loyal to you at the end of verse 4 if you lighten our load verse 5 this is now um, Rehoboam's response to the people he said unto them depart yet for three days and then come again to me and the people departed so he's basically saying uh, let me think about this for three days and not only is he going to think about it but we we see he's actually going to get some advice and that's a good thing to get advice the bible again too mentions that there's wisdom in the multitude of counselors it's a good thing when faced with a tough decision and Rehoboam is faced with probably the toughest decision that he is to face and it's taking place right at the beginning of his reign I mean does he give in to the people and, and make their burden lighter and maybe even in a sense of risk the possibility of appearing weak or does in a sense he say no we're going to hold the line I suppose that's the second position we're going to keep things status quo let me evaluate over the course of time and then I'll decide or does he basically you know say well you know what you guys and it almost makes me think of Pharaoh's the king of Egypt's response as Moses is sent down to Egypt to deliver God's people in that as he's t basically telling Pharaoh that he's come to set God's people free basically 
as a result, once Moses appears upon the scene, God's people have this kind of almost anticipation, this sense, and it appears that they're not doing as much work as they're supposed to be doing. And so what Pharaoh decides to do is, okay, if you guys aren't going to do your work, I'm not going to help you, and I'm not going to give you any straw for making any of the brick. Now it's your responsibility to deliver the same amount of bricks that you're supposed to deliver every day, but we're not going to give you straw. You go find straw on your own. And, he, and Pharaoh basically says it's because you're lazy. I mean, Pharaoh takes this very hard line, and that's a, a, a possibility for Rehoboam. Is he going to take a hard line with God's people? Well, let's see what happens. It says that in verse 6 that Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon, his father, while he yet lived, and said, how do you advise that I may answer this people? Now, I want you to notice how he phrases that because to me there's a, a significance in it and we're going to see how he phrases it differently when he goes to the second group of counselors. And you'll find that if you read a newer translation, again too, you'll see this distinction even in the newer translations. But basically what Rehoboam is doing is he's going to those men that are old, that are wise, that had stood before his father Solomon, arguably the wisest man that is depicted in the scripture, because the wisdom that Solomon had was a God-given gift. At the beginning of Solomon's reign, because of his youth, and because, again, too, he desired to, to do that which was pleasing to God. He asks God for wisdom, and God grants him that request. The wisdom that Solomon has isn't born out of effort or isn't born out of maturity, but it's born directly as a spiritual gift that God has given him. It's something we see in the New Testament as well, the gift of the word of wisdom. So there is a spiritual gifting that God can give, and Solomon had that gift. And the, the men that stood in the presence of Solomon during his reign had the benefit of hearing that wisdom and gleaning that wisdom and learning from that wisdom and, and again, too, becoming wise as a result of Solomon. And so Rehoboam says, What's your advice that I might give this people? Verse 7, And they spake unto him, saying, if you will be a servant unto this people this day and will serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. Basically, they're telling him, you need to be a servant to them. You know, it's kind of like the saying that is used, you know, in order to get respect, you have to earn it. Sometimes people think that just because they're in a particular position of authority, people have to respect me. I've noticed that over the years that I've been in the ministry, and I think maybe in my youth, when I was a younger guy, 27, 28 years old when we first got started with the Bible study. And, and again, too, there were people that came to the Bible study. Some were about my age, some were younger, some were older. And again, too, it's just interesting to, to be a pastor and yet to be a young man. And to, almost in my youth, I expected people to respect that office of, of pastor. And granted, I was in the Marine Corps. So, you know, in some ways, some of these things, the, the, the leadership, the mentality that I had, some what came from not only my reading of God's Word, but my, you know, the way things work in the military. I mean, it doesn't matter how old a young or how old or young a guy is, if he's got more stripes on his arm than you do, then you have to respect that authority. You might not like the guy, but he has that type of authority. And as a, a Marine, we respected that. Much like the, the, the Roman centurion who said, I, I know what it's like to be under authority and I know what it's like to exercise authority. The problem is, is that, again, like I said, it's something that also that authority, that respect, that willingness that people will have to follow you as a leader many times has to be earned. I think Solomon, both David and Solomon, learned those lessons as young boys. 
I mean, David learned what it was like, again, too, to care for people because he cared for flocks of sheep. And so much of what he learned as a young boy tending sheep was applicable to what God was wanting to do with him as a shepherd. He cared for people that same way. Yes, he's anointed to be king, but at the same time, he's willing to, again, too, he's willing to, 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 to save a sheep out of the mouth of the, of the lion or out of the paw of the bear. In the same way, you know, he's wanting to deliver God's people from this bear of a guy, Goliath. But again, it all goes, it ties in with who he is as a shepherd and his willingness to care for the sheep. Same thing with Solomon. Even though Solomon had grown up in the king's household and grew up with servants and had probably had every advantage as the king's son. And not only the king's son, but again, too, you see in the scripture the favor that Bathsheba had as one of David's wives. And yet at the same time, Solomon in his youth recognizes his own inability. And that's why he prays for wisdom. But Rehoboam is different. And the thing that is conspicuously absent is Rehoboam going before God and asking for wisdom or for advice. He is just simply going to go to the old men. And even then, it's a a great first step. But I think something in Rehoboam's heart is already kind of shut off to the advice or the counsel that these men are going to give. Because again, I want you to notice the way he phrases that in verse 6. How do you advise that I may answer this people and... You read the advice, or I read the advice in verse 7. It says in verse 8 that he forsook the counsel of the old men. And it says, which they had given him. I mean, that probably just doesn't sit well with him. You want me to, to give in to these people? You want me to serve? I'm the king. I've been anointed the king. I'm anointed the king. He could even say, I'm anointed by God to be the king. My father is Solomon. My grandfather is David. And you're going to tell me that I have to give in to these people? He could have easily had that type of attitude. We don't know. The scripture doesn't show us exactly what he is thinking. But again, it's easy to have that pride. When you think that you have the authority, that you have the pride, that again, too, I'm not going to be told what to do. I've got an army. I've got God on my side. I've got, again, too, however you want to, you know, to frame it. And it says in verse 8 that he forsook the counsel of the old men which they had given him and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him which stood before him. You know, again, too, to get advice, and then, I don't like that advice. I'm going to go, I'm going to find somebody who's going to think the way I think. And I think that's a mistake. You know, the Bible says that there's wisdom in the multitude of counselors, and I think so many times over the years as I've exercised that, what God's Word says to do. I I think about even, too, as a young man, when I first, uh, even before I got saved, I always had this tendency, I always respected the wisdom and the maturity of those that were older than me that I could learn from. I mean, at times, even in, in crisis in my own life, it's like I didn't turn to my buddies that were the same age as me. What am I going to do? I had friends that, that did that, <laughs> you know. I remember I had a friend, and there were a couple of times he was just in this. And again, too, we're high school kids, you know, or we're just out of high school. And he was in this up-and-down relationship with his girlfriend. You know, one week it'd be on, one week it'd be off. One week it'd be on, one week it'd be off. And, and whenever it was off, then he'd call me up, and he was, he'd be bummed out and depressed, and he's looking for advice. And, and I think it was also the year that one of the Star Wars, it might have been the first Star Wars movie, not only had come out, but then, I mean, b- back when I was growing up, 
in high school, you know, we didn't have VCRs or Comcast or On Demand or Netflix or anything like that. It's not like you could see a movie that had come out in the movie theaters by watching it on video again. But what would happen is they, these cheap theaters would play these first-run movies over and over and over and over. And because Star Wars was this huge blockbuster, the original movie, it was going on for like six months a year after the movie was over. And the thing is, my friend would call me up. He says, let's go see Star Wars. And I can't think of how many times we went to see Star Wars just because he, his girlfriend had broke up with him. But again, too, the other answer that he had and again, we were 19 at the time, and again, we weren't believers, but his answer was, let's drive across the state line to Wisconsin. The drinking age there is 19. Let's go have a few beers. And we would do that as well. But he didn't look to anybody older, wiser, more mature for advice. And since I brought up the subject of girlfriends and broken relationships and, and how to navigate those things, when I again to just to show you the difference when my girlfriend broke up with me I didn't know what to do where to go and the first place I went it was kind of weird it was strange but I showed up at the house of my girlfriend she was away at college but I showed up at her house and her mom I mean, this is German you know, staunch stoic people they don't show emotion like Mexicans do if you're German I'm just saying but I showed up, and her mom, you know, I, she opens the door, and I just break out crying, and, and it's just like her arms are just like this, you know, they just didn't, they didn't want to hug me, but they're there, it's going to be all right, you know. I didn't go to Star Wars, I didn't go drinking, I didn't, I mean, you know, I, again, too, you know, there were other times, too. That as a young man, just devastating things happen. And again, too, these are all before I was a Christian, but I would always go to someone that was older and wiser. Because I, I knew that maybe they'd been through these things before. And I think so many times when you're young, whether it's the enemy or whether it's our own fears, they get the better of us. Even when I mention relationships, I mean... It's, as a high school kid, I remember thinking, and even though I had a lot of friends and all this, I just remember thinking, you know, what if nobody ever loves me and ever wants to marry me? I'm, I know, it sounds sad, but I got a great wife. I didn't have to worry about that. But it's funny, the fears that we have because we lack understanding or experience or we even lack an understanding of how God is working in each one of our lives. I remember, again, too, I remember one time getting into a big fight with my dad and not knowing where to go, not knowing what to do. And I showed up at the brother-in-law of my girlfriend's house. It's about 11 o'clock, 11.30 at night. I'm knocking on his back door. I'm 19 at the time again. I'm knocking on his back door, and he's, he's got an apron on. He's a carpenter, but he's got an apron on because he's making some cinnamon rolls at 11.30 at night. <laughs> I know, it's funny. And he sees me there, and I'm just, I am so emotionally, you know, I can't talk. I've just gotten this big fight with my dad. I'm upset. I'm even crying, and... But I didn't say anything. He, I, I knock on the door. He opens the door. And he, you know, he was, at the time, he was probably 28. So he's about 10 years older than I am. But he sees me standing there at 1130 at night. And he says, hmm, you've never come to visit me before. You must be having either problems with your girlfriend or problems with your parents. And I said, yeah, my parents. He said, come on in. And he gave me cinnamon rolls. And it made me, <laughs> made me feel better. I know. And it's important as to where or who we turn to for advice or counsel. I know we don't like, you know, when we're younger, we don't like to turn to those that, maybe we do. Maybe some do, and, but maybe some don't. Maybe just others feel like, I'm going to work it out. 
I'm going to figure it out. My parents don't understand. Or the older generation doesn't get it or understand. You know, I normally don't like reading the lyrics of songs, especially songs that aren't Christian. But there's a, a guy back in the 70s. I don't know if he's still around. He's also converted to Islam, so I'm not a big fan anymore. I know. Cat Stevens. But he did this song called Father and Son. I just want to read a couple of the lines because, again, what is taking place here to me is exactly what happens when you forsake the counsel of an older, wiser person. And actually, I want to tell you a couple things that Proverbs says. Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon writes this in verse 1. This is how the book of Proverbs opens. He says, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment, and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 9 says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. For by me your days shall be multiplied, and the years of your life shall be increased. If you be wise, then you will be wise for yourself, but if you scorn, then you alone will bear it. Getting back to the lyrics of this song, and again, I've for some reason, this particular passage reminds me of this. I always think of this song. And again, it, it is a dialogue between a father and a son. And, you know, the father says it's not time to make a change. Just relax. Take it easy. You're still young. That's your fault. There's so much more you have to know. <laughs> Take this with a grain of salt, but he says, find a girl. Settle down if you want. You can marry. Look at me. I am old, but I'm happy. I was once like you are now, and I know it's not easy to be calm when you've found something going on. But take your time. Think a lot. Why think of everything you've got? For you will still be here tomorrow, but your dreams may not. I think about my own relationship with my dad when I read this. The son says, how can I try to explain? When I do, he turns away again. It's always been the same, same old story. From the moment I could talk, I was ordered to listen. Now there's a way, and I know that I have to go away. I know I have to go. The father says, it's not time to make a change. Just sit down, take it slowly. You're still young, that's your fault. There's so much more you have to go through. Find a girl, settle down if you want. You can marry, look at me. I'm old, but I'm happy. And then the son says, all the times that I've cried, keeping all things that I knew inside, it's hard, but it's harder to ignore it. If they were, were right, I'd agree, but it's them they know, not me. Now there's a way, and I know that I have to go. I know that I have to go. Like I said, it makes me think of my own dad. It makes me think of probably everything that every teenager ever, ever feels about their parents or the parents feel about their kids. And for me, this forsaking of the counsel of the old man is to the, the harm of Rehoboam and to the harm of the kingdom. He goes to the young men, those guys that had grown up with him, and he said unto them, verse 9, and I, again too, I want you to notice the subtle difference in the way that he words this to them because when he words it in verse 6, to the older man, he says, how do you advise that I might answer this people? In verse 9, he says, what counsel give ye that we... <laughs> See, he, 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 it's funny because he's saying, now we, you know, we're all friends. We grew up together. We think alike, right? What do you think we should say? What counsel 
should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which your father did put upon us lighter. And the young men that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt you speak unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. Thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. I think in the NIV it says thicker than my father's waist. I mean, it's an expression. It's a way of saying, you thought my father was bad or tough? My, my little finger, I'm going to be thicker than him. In verse 11 it says, And now whereas my father did laden you or burden you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you or disciplined you with whips, but I'm going to chastise you with scorpions. I mean, again, too, these guys are taking the total hard-line approach. This is how you should answer. Do not give them an inch. You need to be assertive. And I know sometimes people think that that's the right approach to take. But like I said, in this particular case, you know, he is just a young man wanting to be established as king. He hasn't sought out counsel from God. And he's not, again, too, one of the things we see constantly in the scripture are those leaders that were first servants or learned to be a servant. And you can go through the scripture and see example after example after example. Even those that maybe were in positions that they could have, they had the potential of being a good leader. Moses was brought up in the house of Pharaoh, but when he tries to exercise any authority, what happens? The people don't respect the authority. He ends up killing this guy, and, and now he has to flee for his life, and he's hiding in the wilderness for 40 years. Again, tending sheep, learning the lessons that God wants him to learn. Comes back not only as a mature older man, but he comes back with all that experience of tending sheep because God is going to call him to tend two and a half million people when he delivers them from Egypt. He learns what it is to be a servant first. David is another good example. I already mentioned the Roman centurion. In the book of Acts, before the disciples, eat, you know, they see this need of these Hellenist widows who have, you know, again, too, their daily portion isn't being met. They're not being treated fairly. And what they do is the church decides we need to appoint deacons to take care of this matter. And one of the qualifications is they have to be able to be servants. I mean, in order to give people authority, we need to recognize, you know, they need to recognize what it is to be a servant. And the same thing with Jesus, you know, basically told his disciples, I am one among you who serves. That's the type of leadership that God is constantly grooming to care for his people. Rehoboam isn't like that because that's not the mindset that he and his friends have. He takes this hard line. He is going to be assertive. He forsakes the wisdom that is available, but he also doesn't seek God. And it says in verse 12 that when Jeroboam son of Nebat, and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. Verse 13, the king answered the people roughly. I mean, again, too, he's going to throw that in for emphasis. He answers the people roughly. And again, it tells us that he forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him. I think that implies that had he followed their counsel, that was the correct answer because it's clear from the consequences of, of, of this line, this line in the sand that he draws. And it says in verse 14 that he spake unto them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, I will add to your yoke. My father also disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. <laughs> Tie them at the end of the whips. And, you know. yeah. and it says in verse 15, Wherefore, the king hearkened not unto the people. I mean, this again, too, this is the type of insecurities that the first king of Israel had, King Saul. 
He didn't listen to the people. As we were studying in First and Second Samuel and in First King, well, the, the reign of David ended in Second Samuel. But when we studied the life of David, that was one thing that we consistently saw that even in certain junctures in time where the people felt like maybe this isn't the right thing for us to do or David's men said, you really sure that God's called us to do this? David was willing not only to listen, but to ask the Lord in prayer, Lord, should we do this? Should we protect the people of Keilah? Or should we, again, to go down? I mean, David is constantly praying about what to do, especially when his people around him are asking. And it says in verse 15 that the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord, that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spake by Ahijah the Shilonite unto Jeroboam the son of Nebat. We saw that the last chapter. It's sad because part of this is the consequence or is the direct consequence of his father David. I mean, I'm sorry, his father Solomon for forsaking the Lord. And as a result, he is the one, or this is the generation in which this consequence is being brought to pass. And it says in verse 16, So when the people saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king. I mean, this is the way they respond. I mean, he should have known better that, you know, they're going to respond this way because, again, too, there were times in Israel's history where they responded this way. I mean, just read the book of Judges, the times where the tribes just went their own way. I mean, they had 12 individual tribes. They had leaders of those individual tribes. There was, a, again, to a geographical di divide between the tribes of the nation of Israel that were on the east side of the bank and on the west side of the bank of the River Jordan. And now there's this divide, and it's going to be a permanent divide throughout Israel's history between the northern kingdom of Israel that is eventually going to be called Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah is going to be made up of two tribes. The northern kingdom of Israel is going to be made up of ten tribes. But there is this divide that comes as a consequence of sin and of forsaking God. And it says that all Israel, when they saw that the king didn't listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. And in verse 17 it says, But as for the children of Israel which dwelt in the cities of Judah. Now, this is the exception. Even though there were 12 different tribes and they had their own portion in the land of Israel, sometimes there would be people that lived in a particular, they moved to a different part of the country and they lived in a particular different part of tribe. And verse 17 addresses those children of Israel that happened to dwell in the cities of Judah. And it says that Rehoboam reigned over them in verse 17. And then it says in verse 18, Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram. Adoram. He was an adorable guy. Adoram. He just adored him. He was over the tribute. This is the king's tax collector. He sends him, and all Israel stoned him with stones that he died. Don't do that to your tax collectors. And it says, therefore, King Rehoboam, I mean, he knows now, not only did they go their own way and say, you know what, you take care of your own tribe, but not only do they draw, the nation of Israel, the ten tribes draw their own line, but they go so far as to put this guy to death who's trying to collect the taxes that they had previously paid. And it says there in verse 18, Therefore King Rehoboam made speed to get him to his chariot and to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. Verse 20, It came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam, this is now Jeroboam the son of Nebat, was come again, that they sent and called him unto the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. And actually, we know from the previous chapter that another tribe is going to be following the house of David, and that's going to be the tribe of Benjamin. We also know from the previous chapter that Jeroboam has an, actually, has a, an opportunity 
to be faithful and to have the same kind of covenant relationship with God as king as David had. So now God is bringing to pass the things that he has promised to Jeroboam. And I mentioned this last week. There's good reason. Jeroboam, much like David, was faithful as a young man. And he was recognized as a leader, so much so that Solomon put him in charge of the tribe of Ephraim. And now as God is fulfilling his promise and his plan to Jeroboam, Jeroboam has the same opportunity that David has to be in a right relationship with God and to govern those ten tribes and to lead them in a relationship with God. He is that man that God is raising up. It's clear that God is raising him up because the prophet Ahijah, speaking on behalf of God, said that this is what God is wanting to do. What is necessary for God to accomplish his will in Jeroboam, the son of Nebat's life? Obedience to the commandments of God. Being faithful to the Lord, keeping the statutes, which even if he wasn't king, he should do that anyway, right? When he knows the faithfulness of God. So the, the congregation calls to Jeroboam. They basically say, we want to make you king. Verse 21, it says that when Rehoboam was come to Jerusalem, you know, now his, this is his move. I mean, kind of like in a, a big chess game, you know, Rehoboam is figuring, okay, you guys are going to rebel. Well, you know what? Now it's time for me to call the army together, muster the army together, and we will by force bring the other ten tribes into submission. Now, I don't know that, you know, here's the thing. Historically, the tribe of Judah, and if you see the amount of land that they have in the nation of Israel, they have the most land space, but they were also, too, uh, historically, the largest tribe of all the tribes. They, the Lord really blessed and prospered the particular tribe of Judah because God was doing a work in that tribe. And so he is going to muster an army together. And, and again, too, throughout Israel's history, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, at times they do fight against each other, and they're pretty evenly matched. So there may be a good chance that if Rehoboam is successful in mustering his army and basically going and attacking a civil war, attacking the rest of the nation, he could possibly bring them back under his authority by force. And it says that there in verse 21, that he assembled all the house of Judah, with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men, which were warriors to fight against the house of Israel, to bring them the kingdom again to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Verse 22. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord. You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. And they hearkened, therefore, to the word of the Lord and returned to depart according to the word of the Lord. To me, this shows the first indication in which Rehoboam is actually hearing what God has to say. Better late than never. I mean, yes, the kingdom is divided. But what would have happened had he been disobedient to God's word? Would his army have suffered defeat? Or would both armies been, again, too ravaged as a result? And may, maybe even to uh, cause the nation as a whole to be so weakened that their enemies around them could attack? We don't know, but the bottom line is, is the word of God tells them, this is from me. And as a result, he listens. And as a result, everyone basically, they call the fight off and the kingdom is going to be divided now. And he's able to rest in knowing that God has caused this to happen. Verse 25, it says then, Jeroboam, back in Israel, back in the northern tribe of Israel. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein, and went out from thence, and built Peniel. And it says that Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. 
There's no reason for Jeroboam to think this because God has already told him through his prophet Ahijah that he would be the king and that God is wanting to establish him as king in the same way that he had established David. The problem is, is that Jeroboam is going to be governed by his fear. He's thinking. He's insecure. He's worried. Even though he's got ten of the tribes and Rehoboam only has two of the tribes, he is thinking in his heart, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. You know, they're going to they're go back. The kingdom's going to eventually go back and, and return to the house of David. That's what he says in verse 26. In verse 27, and this is why he is thinking this, because he knows that at this point in time, the people are committed to following God. And there's three times out of the year in which they have to go to Jerusalem to worship God to celebrate the feasts. So this is his reasoning, his thinking. These are the fears that are, that are playing upon him at this point. In verse 27, he says, If the people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of the people turn again to their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. See, he's worried that if they go there, that they will then be committed to him as king. That's his fear. How the enemy loves to play upon our fears. Paul writes in Timothy in his epistle, he says that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. I mean, sometimes even our fears make perfect sense. I mean, this, what he is saying, you know, yeah, it does make sense. But this is what God is doing. God is basically saying, you're going to have to trust me. I've given you these ten tribes, you're going to have to trust me. And in verse 28, now it's Jeroboam that's seeking counsel. The first half of the chapter, it was Rehoboam that was getting advice. Now it's Jeroboam that's getting advice. And the thing is, they're both getting bad advice. They're both going to follow the bad advice. The king took counsel, verse 28, and he made two calves of gold and said unto the people, said unto them, It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I mean, he knew their tendency to worship these false gods already. Again, too, you know, they were just simply prone and maybe even fascinated by the fact that, that, that the, the inhabitants of the land had worshipped other gods as well. And they're warned constantly throughout the scripture to not even figure out or not, not even, you know, research as to how the, the, the others, the Canaanites, worshipped. Just keep your eyes fixed upon God. But instead, this is the advice he's given. Make a couple of places for them to worship so that the people don't have to go down to Jerusalem to worship. In trips to Israel, you're able to still go and see the ruins, especially of the place that they would go to worship that is in the, the city or the tribe of Dan. But he's basically telling them, you don't have to go up to Jerusalem to worship. In fact, we've got gods right here that you can worship. That's his plan for maintaining the kingdom or keeping people loyal to him as king. He doesn't want them to be exposed to Rehoboam in the southern tribe of Judah as they go to worship God. In verse 29, it says that he set, set the one in Bethel and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And it says in verse 31 that he made a house of high places. I mean, he, he, he's in completely now into idolatry. It says that he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi, which were the priestly tribe. It says in verse 32 that Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel sacrifice unto the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. In verse 32 where it says that he ordained a feast in the eighth month and the fifteenth day of the month, two of the major three feasts that the children of Israel would worship on, 
would occur on the 15th of the month. On the first month, on the 15th day of the month, is when they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then in the seventh month, on the 15th day of the month, was the feast that they celebrated of tabernacles. And so what he does is he basically says, okay, you know, let's just keep this thing consistent. We're going to worship and we're going to have a feast where we're worshiping before these idols on the 15th of the month. It's not going to be the first month or the seventh month. Let's just make it the eighth month. And in, in a way, basically, he's not only giving them a choice, are they going to continue to travel down to Jerusalem from the northern tribes? Or are they just simply going to make the shorter trek to either Bethel or to Dan? And again, too, on the fifth, uh, on the fifth, day of the eighth month he just makes this up and that's what the last verse of the chapter says he just makes this day up so he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the eighth month even the month which he had devised of his own heart that's old King James he just picked a day just made this up and he ordained a feast unto the children of Israel and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense I mean, it's sad because he doesn't even appear to be committed to God or to be obedient or even to value the, the opportunity that he had to be on the receiving end of God's blessings, to be a king, to be a king that would lead God's people into worshiping the true and the living God. He institutes institutes wholeheartedly among the ten tribes, the nation of Israel. He institutes idolatry, and it's something that the nation of Israel is going to struggle for years and years and years until they're carried away captive to Babylon. And the prophets are going to constantly be raised up to call them to repentance. But it's become too much a part of who they are as the northern, northern tribes. And the thing you'll see is that there was not a single king in Israel's history, in the northern tribes, that was a godly king. There were some godly kings in Judah. Not a lot, but there were some that were good and godly kings that God's people, again, too, that would follow the Lord, but also, too, would, would, would again, too, encourage and basically be an example to God's people to, to follow and to walk with God faithfully. But in the northern tribe, they're gone. And when it comes to God's judgment, then the judgment always will take place in these northern tribes first, as an example, even to the southern kingdom of Judah. Hopefully that Judah will remain faithful to the Lord. So let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for the lessons of your word, for the wisdom that's found in your word. And Lord, more importantly, that we wouldn't forsake the wisdom that comes from you, that comes from those that are more mature, that have walked with you, that have been faithful to you, Lord. I pray that we would seek that kind of wisdom out when we're faced with decisions or choices that we have to make. But ultimately, too, Lord, that we wouldn't rely on wisdom, but, Lord, that we would seek you in prayer and follow, Lord, the leading of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask that you'd bless your people, and it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that I pray. Amen.